welcome to Ebooks and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths College, University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Robert Hewison, the author of Cultural Capital, The Rise and Fall of Creative Britain, which is published by Verso in 2014. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, we'll be talking about Cultural Capital, The Rise and Fall of Creative Britain by Robert Hewison. And I'm delighted to have Robert with me. Uh, to discuss the book. So I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit about um, your background and why you've ended up writing this book, because you've obviously had a, a long career in uh, in cultural policy and cultural policy writing. Yes, I, uh, I've written a number of books, uh, essentially, uh, starting in 1939. My second book uh, was on literary life in London during the Second World War, and that went rather well. So I then thought, oh, this is interesting. I'll go on to the 50s and 60s. And those books are essentially cultural history in a fairly traditional sense. But at the same time, I was, as it were, being radicalised by my uh, dealings in the real world with the Arts Council of Great Britain, as it then was, and also because uh, in order to support the very expensive habit of writing books, if you're not an academic, I was working uh, for the Sunday Times as a theatre critic. And I was also working with the Writers Guild of Great Britain, which is an uh, unaffiliated trades union. So increasingly, my interest became uh, not so much culture as the context of culture in terms of, of politics, politics and practice. And although uh, I've never been a particularly theoretical thinker, um, I became, obviously, I became very interested in the thoughts of Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall, and latterly, uh, the work of Gramsci and the whole idea of hegemony uh, became very important to me because I was trying to understand how this country works. Anyway, this whole series of books um, has essentially um, carried on to the present day. My, I after doing that particular trilogy, I moved away from writing pure cultural history and I moved into the sort of more polemical mode with a book called The Heritage Industry, Britain in a Climate of Decline, which <laughs> unusually for one of my books actually <laughs> made a bit of noise. And um, some people say the heritage industry is called, some people say the heritage industry is called the heritage industry uh, because I gave a name to this particular frankly, Thatcherite problem. I also then did another big book, which actually went back to the beginning when I'd acquired a slightly more theoretical consciousness called Culture and Consensus, England, Art and Politics since 1940. And the last edition of that was 1997, came out in 1997, which uh, historians, empirical historians such as myself, notice was when New Labour came into office. Um, I have another string to my bow, which is that I'm a Ruskinian, and therefore I tend to intersperse my work on contemporary cultural politics with um, uh, books on Ruskin. So the early part of this current century was devoted, in fact, to Ruskin's centenary, um, in, he died in 1900, and also then to writing a very big book on Ruskin and Venice. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, I was continuing to observe what was going on. And when, in fact, uh, uh, we had the end of New Labour so emphatically in 2010, the combination of that fact plus the fact that, that uh, we have now have a fixed-term parliament, which means I knew when the next election was going to be, it seemed to make perfect sense to try to write a book a, which took advantage of the fact that new Labour trajectory has, a, has in itself a beginning, a middle and an end, and also the fact that there would be suitable timing so that a book like this, which is intended as an intervention, should be out in time for the election in 2015. So I think the other thing to mention as well in terms of making interventions is you've also had a a hand in some of the policies that you're um, describing, um, historicising and critiquing in, in the book as well. Yes, because um, after um, after a bit, uh, after I actually uh, made the kind of sort of parachute jump into academe, 
uh, <laughs> I went from nothing to professor. You know, I didn't have to do all the hard work of of, of junior lecturer and all that because simply because I happened because I wasn't teaching, I was able to write. So I'd written about twenty books, you know. Um, but. Uh, another thing that happened is, of course, if you're interested in, in, in the practicalities of cultural politics, after a bit, people begin to ask you, uh, well, can you give us some help here? And um, at the beginning of this century, in 2001, I was asked to help design a leadership program called the Claw Cultural Leadership Program in order to improve the quality of cultural leaders and policies in this country. Um, that led to a, a writing partnership with uh, a, a man called John Holden, who was then the head of culture, lovely title, at Demos. So I then joined the world of policy wonks and became an associate of Demos. And I now support my writing by, uh, not by being an academic, but by being a consultant as well as being a broadcaster and journalist, because curiously, I'm still employed by the Sunday Times. I'm on the, I think, 33rd year of my one year contract with the Sunday Times. <laughs> so, um, so you could say that, that whatever, uh, I mean, what distinguishes this book, I suppose, is the fact is that I know where a lot of the bodies are buried. One or two of them I may even have helped to their grave, uh, although I've not cited used myself as a as a as a, a character, mm. as it were, in in this uh, historical narrative. Though, if you sleuth some of the references, you will see that when people tell the Sunday Times something, that's actually me, because I happen to be the person who was writing that article for the Sunday Times. But I've kept, I've kept my, myself out of it, except, of course, that, you know, my complete fury, angry, my complete fury and anger at the way cultural policy is conducted in this country obviously um, makes this a fairly, I think, at times, angry, if not sarcastic book. Yeah, that, that actually shines through wonderfully well in the book and in, in the way the book is written as well. It, it's, it's, there is a very dry wit that runs through the book, uh, which is exceptionally effective, I think, at, at skewering some of the more disastrous cultural policy interventions. Um, and a couple of them uh, we can turn to, actually. Um, you, you give two um, examples early on in the book of... Um, cultural policy ideas uh, and then uh, cultural policy realities that sum up a lot of what you think were the, the problems of, of the early New Labour period. And these are the Millennium Dome uh, and the building of uh, an art centre called The Public in West Brom. So I wonder if you could say uh, a bit about those two examples and maybe how they connect to the, the kind of core critique of the early uh, New Labour years that you're, you're well, making. Well, certainly. Well, the Millennium Dome is very interesting because I was, when it came up, I, I, I was very keen on it and actually tried, I wrote some pieces in the Sunday Times saying what a wonderful idea this was and let's get on with this. And there was completely no response mm. <laughs> from anybody that, you know, there was no, there was no, in I mean, because I'd written about the Festival of Britain, uh, I actually, you know, felt I had a dog in this fight in a small way. Um, but all the New Labour have completely no interest in history. No, but the Millennium Dome is such a wonderful emblem. Uh, it's, it's shape, recalls the Dome of Discovery of 1951. Um, its conception recalls the great expedition, exhibitions of 1851 and 1951. Um, and, of course, the key thing is it was a Tory idea. <laughs> and here we have, you know, New Labour, uh, or neoliberal New Labour almost, I argue in the book, uh, simply taking over... Um, uh, uh, taking over a Tory idea and of course it represents so many different lessons it's about regeneration where the site was, was a ghastly place and still is frankly but anyway they thought that by spending all this money it would be done in a regenerative way um, another thing it reflected was that whereas, whereas uh, 1851 and, and 1951 were, were actually essentially well run government projects 
the ideology, the neoliberal ideology, which had been established under Thatcher and which, frankly, the New Labour just carried on, was that this was going to be a commercial project. So the whole thing was done through an absolutely farcical uh, company called the New Millennium Experience company which wasn't a company at all because actually uh, the sole shareholder was at one point was none other than Peter Mandelson <laughs> and, and uh, there were two secretaries of state involved and so on and the trouble was you had this absolutely beautiful beautiful building with absolutely no clue as to what was to go in it and uh, it is a very very I think it's a very funny story if it weren't for the fact this is an absolute scandal if you think of the number of things that you could have done with the 800 million or whatever it was that was lost uh, diverted from national lottery projects to building this vast waste of money this just pile of a waste of money and time and effort and yet uh, it, it, it actually indicated something else very sinister. If, when you, if you actually analyse how the decision was taken to um, <clears throat> how the decision was taken to to actually build the dome when New Labour came into power, um, people said, "Oh well, Tony wants it," and the cabinet simply caved in and. I only make it, don't make much of it in the book, but I point out that this was actually a forerunner of how we ended up in Iraq. And I think there is something deeply sinister about the way those decisions were taken in the sense that, that this was not good leadership. So, so the dome is the, is the great disaster. And of course, it was also at a time when, uh, young Blair had gone on about his young country. So the whole thing was tied up with this completely spurious notion of cool Britannia, which again is a rather comic, but also in a sense trashy and sinister because it wasn't genuine. You think cool Britannia might be something about a real interest in a, in a new and contemporary culture, but actually it wasn't about that at all. It was simply about flash money yeah you, you use the dome i think it's a really good example of how there are almost kind of two things going on at once with new labor on the one hand this obsession with money and the obsession with the kind of um almost kind of enchantment of large corporations major sponsorship and the idea that um <coughs> the private sector will take care of yes. everything. Yes, and of course the private sector totally refused. <laughs> Whilst at the same time, the demand that culture be done effectively by committee and be safe and be inoffensive and not take any risks and not be challenging. And this is reflected in your uh, discussion of kind of both how the dome is paid for, but actually what actually went into the dome, which yes. by all accounts wasn't much. Nothing at all. No, it was like a vast shopping mall with nothing to buy, but you could eat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it was sponsored by, you know, just like the Olympics, sponsored by really healthy, healthy outlets. Mm. You, know, you could get a McDonald's. <laughs> we'll, we'll come on to the Olympics later because I think um, the tone shifts slightly around the Olympics. Um, and I think it, uh, it's an illustration of how uh, I guess there is a narrative arc in the book from perhaps the kind of the promise of New Labour's entry into government in 97 to around sort of 2000, 2001, and then effectively the kind of lack of delivery uh, on that promise at all. The, the other example that I brought up was, was the public in, in West Bromwich, which yes. uh, in some ways lacked the kind of um, popular headlines that the Dome got in terms of its disastrousness, but in, in many ways was was almost even worse than, than the Dome. Well, yes, indeed, because, I mean, you know, uh, uh, the Dome uh, did reflect a, a national event and was a national event and had scale. Uh, uh, the public, as it became known in West Bromwich, um, was uh, a tragic because there was... Uh, West Bromwich is one of the most deprived parts of, of, of Middle England. Uh, it's, a, it's a really grim spot 
I discovered that there had not been a new public facility built there since 1903, which is when they built the public library. The, the old theatres had gone, everything had gone. Um, and there was a local, there was a local community group. And there really, this is, this is a case where it wasn't really so much economic, re, economically driven regeneration as the idea was that this would be social regeneration through an arts activity. So, um, uh, this, this local team of community artists who were rooted there, um, got up the idea of having an art centre. Only it had to be an art centre with all bells and whistles. And it got a very, very uh, uh, distinguished architect, Will Alsop, who, who was a celebrity for having built a library in Peckham, which is actually a very striking uh, building. Anyway, he then proceeded to build a building which is uh, frankly not fit for purpose and which was not properly rooted in the community who did not have the skills to uh, to run it but there was a huge imperative on the the arts council who were the the distributors of the lottery money to to fund this project um there was a huge pressure on them evidently from the government that they must do something about the midlands they must do something to to do something about about social regeneration and it was of course also part of an urban regeneration plan which has now actually just been finished the public closed just as the whole urban regeneration scheme that it was intended to be the jewel of uh, was completed anyway the the point about the public story is that from the beginning people in the arts council were saying don't do it but Someone in the Arts Council, in other words, the chief executive of the Arts Council, felt it was an obligation. Well, of course, as with all new buildings, and particularly high-tech buildings such as Will Ossop had designed, uh, the project just went madly over budget over time and so on. And by the time it opened, I think there had been th three sets of bankruptcies and all those kinds of things and the local council was, was faced with this enormously expensive uh, um, redundant flagship as it were flagship with no fleet um, and of course uh, European money was involved and therefore they were in a sense obliged to keep it open well in the end it just didn't work so it's now become a sixth form college and I'm sure it'll be useful for that but it has actually its interior has been destroyed and so on and that was just an egregious example of where uh, in a sense you know yes it's absolutely right to want to regenerate a terrible place it is also absolutely right to to invest in, in in culture and in the community arts as a way of doing that but um it is also possible it's only possible to do that successfully if you've got the people who know how to do it and clearly in west bromwich they didn't you identify i think quite early on in the book uh, a sense of a almost a kind of a Faustian pact uh, between governments and the arts in, in Great Britain, um, the public being one good example uh, of some of these trends, whereby the price of a very large increase in funding at a time when the cultural sector in the, the mid-1990s was under quite severe threat, the price of that funding would be doing particular kinds of government policies, such as social and economic regeneration um, and that theme I think runs right the way through the book and uh, the kind of the negotiations that go on uh, around this are quite interesting that initially this is uh, I think embraced um, right across government and, and the arts under these headings of Cool Britannia and Creative Britain and then there is uh, perhaps resistance and, and rebellion later on so I wonder if you could say a bit about the kind of the early phase of um, I, I guess the kind of um, the way the arts in the UK were quite happy with Creative Britain initially. Well, yes, sure. I mean, um, basically, the funding, uh, the trajectory of, of public support for the arts, government support for the arts, since the war is of a 
um, a, a series of slowly ascending plateaus. There is, it slowly ascends up to the 60s, and then under Labour in the 60s, there is um, a, a decided uh, increase, and roughly half the cultural infrastructure of the country is built. That's in terms of buildings. So yeah. that's when you get the National Theatre and decisions like the National Theatre, you get the Shakespeare Company coming on board, you get the Haber Gap, you get those things. Then we get Thatcherism and funding. Well, first of all, actually, we get the, the economic crisis of 73, that recession and so on. And basically, um, give or take um, a percentage point, uh, funding for the arts remains on a plateau until, uh, uh, until the early 1990s. And indeed, when New Labour took over in 1997, such was their prudence, uh, everybody's forgotten this, uh, and their commitment to sticking to Tory, um, the outgoing Tory government spending plans, that they actually cut the Arts Council's funding in the first year, which is not something we think of because the I think of New Labour as being this profligate and generous thing. So um, then, then it was agreed that yes. Um, it was important that that the arts could take play could take its share, and we are aware then in a moment of a rising economy we 're at the beginning of the long boom which run which with the exception of the dot com bubble in 2000, 2001, and uh, finally climaxes in 2007 and So there is a a sense of rising affluence, which had actually begun under under the major government. Um, And yes, that plus sorting out this new funding stream called the National Lottery, because the key, I think one of the key successes of New Labour was to reform the National Lottery in such a way as the people responsible for handing out the money to heritage, to sport, to the arts, were actually enjoined to make uh, policy decisions and planning decisions as opposed to merely responding to demand. So that, uh, for instance, the Heritage Lottery Fund made it a point that every single local authority wherever it was, would have enjoyed the benefits of the lottery because the lottery is is played by the many for the benefits of the few. And that, that really was, is, and of course, as is the case of all uh, arts, um, public expenditure on the arts, uh, you know, uh, it, it is the reverse of the rest of the welfare state in that the benefits tend to flow from the poor paying their taxes to the middle classes enjoying the benefits of, of cultural investment. And of course, there was a great desire in what was left of labor in new labor you know to change that and of course one of the tragedies of the book is that um, by their own reckoning there's been a complete failure for of a shift in 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 the in the the demographic that is actually genuinely interested in in the publicly funded arts yeah i think early on in the book there's a sense that um the power uh, of culture to do um, a whole range of things um, for social um, and kind of economic uh, needs in Great Britain was really embraced. And one of the kind of, I guess, core moments in the book is how you analyse the policy framework uh, and I guess the kind of the governance structures around these policies that lead in effect, nowhere, and lead to the conclusion, uh, as you identify in, in the later chapters of um, arts policy that was effectively doing similar things to what it was doing in the 80s and 90s in terms of funding the interests of particularly well-educated people at the cost of um, both the lottery and taxpaying um, money from, broadly speaking, working class or or poorer groups. Yes, I go so far at one point as, as to suggest that public funding for the arts is the way governments keep the British intelligentsia on board. And, and you talk also about the uh, what do you call it the the amoeba 
um, that, that kind of summarises. Uh, well, yes, it's, I mean, you know, if, if you're a researcher, you're trying to write a book which is of more than academic interest, as it were, to discover that a peer review of the Department for Culture, Media and Sport is, has been named by a senior member of, of the British bureaucracy. And it says, what well, you know, how would you describe this this organisation and the people inside it describe it as a pale yellow amoeba? I mean that is a gift to a writer, <laughs> um, and uh, and it's also true because it was pale, it was ineffective, it was yellow in the sense that it was you know pretty cowardly in my view, and it was an amoeba in the sense that it, it had it was completely shapeless and had no and indeed divided against itself. Mm. So that characterizes the state of government. And the trouble is that in in, um, in another chapter, which I feel quite proud, uh, although it's actually a, you know, it's a chapter for geeks, but the parallel stories of the constant reorganization of the Art, of Arts Council England and the even worse constant reorganization of the equivalent for, for, for the Heritage Museums, Libraries and Archives um, is such a funny story uh, if it weren't actually a real tragedy. Mm. Uh, in compensation, though, I do say that in spite of all this, actually a new leadership of cultural institutions does emerge. And, of course, it's partially that new leadership which leads the kickback through saying we need to make a different case for the arts through the notion of cultural value and public value and things like that. Yeah, I, I wonder if actually if you could say a bit about that because that's a crucial moment in the book where um, both resistance to the idea of the arts being used for social and economic policy emerges, but also resistance to... Um, I guess the policy process itself, particularly in terms of things like targets and new labour's um, public service agreements and its approach to kind of uh, demanding quantifiable outcomes from arts organisations uh, emerges as well. Well, yes. I mean, uh, we, we talked earlier about the Faustian bargain. The Faustian bargain really was that, that up until uh, 1997, essentially uh, cultural policy in Britain was of so little consequence to anybody except the cultural elite um, that the government acknowledged that, you know, it had a prestige obligation to maintain, you know, <laughs> maintain the National Gallery mm, yeah. and so on. And there were residual uh, uh, commitments to the value of culture, to local communities and local identity, which really goes back to the uh, the Jenny Lee years during the during the 1960s when for the very first time we got actually an arts minister and for the very first time a policy document something like 10-15 years after the, the, the government had officially taken on the responsibility yeah. for culture by forming the Arts Council. Anyway, so basically up to 1997 there was tiny amounts of money, less than half of 1% of total government expenditure went into went into into culture and culture largely of a traditional form with one or two sort of uh, hegemonic adjustments in order to take on community arts and one or two things that were happening in the 60s um, but two things came along first of all new labor in its in its in its belief in the new public management which it thought was the way to do things. And secondly, of course, the National Lottery completely transformed the economics so that you could actually start build, you could complete that cultural infrastructure which had been, in terms of buildings, which had been begun in the 1960s, and you could use culture and cultural facilities as a source of economic regeneration in places like Liverpool, possibly successfully in West Bromwich, completely unsuccessfully so you know, there are many factors but there was a price for this this is the Faustian bargain this is right okay you in the arts and heritage if you we're going to give you all this money we're going to want results we're going to want things 
from you. So um, to borrow uh, a metaphor from uh, Hartley, uh, in the old days, the arts used to sit at the back door of the government with holding out a tin can, begging. And now suddenly the arts are being invited in through the front door essentially the front row of the treasury of course but of course that meant that it could no longer sort of be a, this this sort of slightly uh, uh, whiffy dodgy uh, bohemian slightly anarchic creative but not necessarily conventional thing it had to wear a suit it had to carry a clipboard and it had to tick the box and of course the boxes that governments want to tick are if you're a conservative government, which is where it started, you want to tick the economic box. If you are a a Labour government, you want to tick the economic box and the social box so that you've got to... um, You've got to make sure that, you know, that uh, X number of of people in C2D are affected by the arts and so on. Um, Unfortunately, and in a sense... There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in my view, the problem with cultural policy in this country is we've never had a cultural policy. And then when we do get one, they're not actually sufficiently well equipped, as my analysis of the various bureaucratic failings at the time, they're not sufficiently well equipped to um, uh, to implement these policies. But the real trouble is, is that the arts and heritage and this may be my class position, this may be my romantic position, this may be my old boho position, but the arts are not susceptible to the kinds of policy measurements which um, which governments expect. Because central to the concept of the arts is this notion creativity, that is to say, making something new. Now, of course, policy planning is not about making something new. It's about making a plan and hitting a target. But in the arts, it is very difficult to predicate. Uh, We will have five Michelangelos in five years and 20 Rubens in 30 years if we follow this particular trajectory in that way. Um, And it very rapidly became clear that the ironic way and the ironic use of the word creative Britain, because uh, as I point out, the word creative, which comes from the cool Britannia years, they drop cool very yeah. quickly, but they stayed with creative. And they shift also from cultural to creative. As well. Yes, yes. And, and they talk about the creative industries, not the cultural industries, the creative industries. Well, creative, of course, is, is a very difficult word to define. <laughs> but it sounds good. Um, it brings with it uh, the notion of some kind of autonomy, and it brings with it some, some kind of, of, of self-fulfillment. So uh, when Tony Blair goes, Chris Smith publishes a book called Creative Britain, it sounds great. But actually, the very thing that that the chimera that that New Labour was chasing, creativity, was actually being crushed by the conditions which the, the, the government was seeking to create. And that's the problem, because what it did, essentially, is it destroyed trust. And the one essential element for creativity and for creative people, and I know this because I've been a theatre critic, I know this because I've worked in the arts, it's, you know, I, I know this from my own intimate knowledge and have, uh, with artist friends and so on, is that you need to be able to work in conditions of trust. It's, I mean, the cliche is the right to fail, but it isn't really the right to fail. It's the right to experiment. And, of course, in a government which is increasingly centralising, which is increasingly controlling, which is increasingly paranoid, which has, has um, you know, press positions before the event has actually happened... That is not a country in which trust is much engendered. Um, 
And at the same time, of course, those who wish to, to attack this principle and so on find themselves excluded. So, uh, again, the paradox of the Faustian bargain is that actually both sides lose. And, and you, you capture this uh, perfectly in a chapter towards the end of the book, where at the same time as people like the Chief Executive of the Arts Council, um, or indeed people like Tony Blair are saying this has been a golden age for the arts, you're very, um, I think, specific in saying actually it became an age of lead, um, and partially for the reasons you've you've talked about, but also because of um, a shift in government and particularly around funding at the same time as um, these other longer-term ideological and bureaucratic trends. So I wonder if you could um, say a bit about. Um, where we are now at the end of this this new Labour process? Well, at the end of the new Labour process, of course, we get a coalition government. Um, and the, the last five years, we, we've been under this coalition government, although what is interesting is the Department of Culture and Media and Support has only had Conservative ministers. So the Liberal Democrats, who actually did do a bit of thinking, um, but none of that has actually applied. So we've basically gone backwards in that the, co- the coalition government essentially abandoned any thought that the arts might have any redemptive or socially redemptive or ameliorative position uh, and went back to the old argument, which is the old Thatcherite argument, is, is that the arts are at the service of the economy. Yeah, you talk about this with a, a former arts minister, Maria Miller's speech around, yep. you know, the job is to help exports and to make money. Yes, and get better at asking. In other words, turn to philanthropy. Well, as I say, it's rather counterintuitive to expect uh, individuals and, and, and corporations to cough up when their own economies are going down the pan because of the because of the the recession and all three and and again it shows how trivial now the arts considered is that all three we've had three secretaries of state for culture media and sport in five years um the golden age if you like of new labor was when you had uh, uh chris smith a secretary of state for a full term achieving quite a considerable reconstruction of the cultural sector. And I think, in in general terms, uh, 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 achieving quite a lot, including, of course, free entry to national museums, which is the one lasting thing that no one's dared change since. Well, it's interesting that, because one of the things you talk about uh, later on in the book is the almost the fear uh, within particularly the Conservative Party that they would be seen as the nasty party who will be full of cuts and this kind of stuff. And actually particular um, new Labour policies that in many ways, and one of your chapters is about the, the failure of uh, access policies to really kind of engender uh, interest in the arts amongst the general population. The Conservatives were quite happy to keep that because it was so symbolically important. Yes, indeed. And, of course, um, uh, when we actually find out the 40 million visits a year are actually made by the the educated little classes, who are, of course, enjoying the fact that they don't have to pay to go to Tate Britain or Tate Modern, and that's that's absolutely fine. No, the, the, the problem with this Faustian bar- bargain and... and becomes evidenced when in 2005 the government in order to measure its own targets establishes this quarterly survey taking part and the astonishing thing is um, uh, as we speak the latest taking part figures they're issued quarterly um, the difference in uh, attendance by the population between when it started in 2005 and now is an increase of 0.2%. And people say, well, that's terrific, because it means 77% of the population are engaging with the arts, they say. But then you say, hang on, 
How often do you actually have to engage with the arts to qualify for that figure? And the answer is once a year. Now, that does not make Britain a nation of culture vultures. The, there are figures, better figures for, well, there are figures which show that, that people who attend more than three times um, are above 50% of the adult population. But, um, to my mind, and of course then if you, make a, if, if you then make a, a class analysis of that, you discover that actually working class, if you can still use that term, and certainly black and minority ethnic attendance has actually gone down during this period. Which, which is, of course, for someone like myself who has spent their lives pushing for public investment in the arts, and you can hear the police coming to arrest me <laughs> <laughs> for saying that, it is, it is deeply, deeply disappointing. And I think, I think the answer is, is because there's been a complete failure in education. Because... It's education that is the portal to the arts. Yeah, and, and you make that point repeatedly in the book, actually, that uh, one of the failures of the government's infrastructure around the arts was not to reach out to other government departments, not to kind of embed itself, uh, but rather to carry on as that pale yellow amoeba that um, really, uh, I guess, kind of you know, ring-fenced itself around DCMS and the Arts Council. Um this has been, uh, to an extent, quite a pessimistic conversation about the kind of... There have been some, some moments of optimism, but um, the book and our conversation has been really, you know, the story of uh, the failure of the promise um, of the new Labour era. But actually, the conclusion, I think, is quite hopeful, and you mount a very strong defence of the importance of culture in society, both the idea that culture is a social process, but also around this idea of cultural capital. So I wonder if you could um, say a bit about the optimism and the defence of culture that um, comes up in the conclusion. Yes, of course. Um, cultural capital, and the way I use cultural capital, is not uh, exactly the same way as Bourdieu uses it, who, of course, says it's a, it's a nod to his... To, to, to that phrase and whereas of course Bourdieu is and in fact writing about a very different period and different mm. conditions and so on in a different country uh, uh, whereas Bourdieu sees cult cultural capital as a way of excluding people from things I actually see cultural capital as a cooperative creation so that the more people have it the more valuable it is rather than being diluted by this fact. So I see culture, but of course, cultural capital is what you need in order to appreciate, uh, if you like the finer things in life, but in order to enjoy the arts, to understand the arts, uh, to appreciate uh, uh, changes in the arts and so on. And this is, you know, someone who is an expert on rap or hip hop has fantastic amount of cultural capital because he or she fully understands the traditions of that. Well, it's the same, you know, I, I regard that as a class-neutral position, if you like. Um, and I think that, that that it is, of course, class cultural capital is, in a sense, essential to the preservation of, of a, um, a successful society and what I call the public realm or the cultural commons. These are the kinds of ideas which I'm seeking in, in, at the close of the book to revive by having shown the ways in which privatisation, for instance, has narrowed the public realm, how we are losing uh, the ability to, to have a cultural commons because there is nowhere, uh, there is no place of... Um, independent exchange and trust. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm a socialist in the sense I belong to the Labour Party. Perhaps it's a contradiction in terms these days. I don't know, but you know, I'm a socialist in the in the sense that I believe in planning and I believe that the state has a responsibility. But my view of the state, particularly in culture, is is not command and control, but to create the conditions to hold the ring. Not to act as a gatekeeper, but actually as a door opener 
for people to access this absolutely wonderful thing, which is a sense of cultural identity and indeed to enjoy creativity. And that cannot be done under under management and, and administrative systems which actually destroy the trust which make the capacity to create possible. And some of that potential is shown in your analysis of the Olympics, whilst at the same time the great dangers, um, particularly around the kind of over-centralisation and over-bureaucratisation, there's a wonderful list of all the kind of the different agencies involved and the acronyms and, and stuff like this in that chapter. But that, yeah, potential moments is there with, with the discussion. Of, well, yes, and, and what, was know, ceremony. what was very interesting during my research is I actually did discover someone saying uh, we learnt our effective thing we learnt our lesson from the dome mm. ministers were not going to be allowed to interfere in the same way that Mandelson and co had completely messed up the dome I mean you know their, ha- their bloody hands are all, all over the dome and all mistakes because they they don't have the, uh, the imagination yeah. whereas uh, interestingly enough, um, the the cultural limp. Well, in fact, the the culture. First of all, the whole idea of there being a really big cultural program alongside the uh, 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 sporting program was relatively new. It had been done in Australia. It had been done done elsewhere. But this was a big moment, and this is where that whole notion that 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 whole notion that the arts are part of this strange phenomenon called the creative industries actually began to make sense because there was a genuine relationship between uh, the true creatives people like uh, Danny Boyle and so on who are who are artists and they, they make films they direct plays they do those things and then that uh, penumbra of technical people like designers like lighting designers like people who know how to make and move things all that in in a genuinely creative way so um and of course there is you know i'm a writer and therefore i like to give some sort of pattern to the book and so on there is a way in which i use the opening ceremony as a kind of uh, as a reflection on the dome, and as a, also as a one moment, you could actually be optimistic about what had been invested, but then you have to recognise that while everybody says, "Oh, uh, from now on, everything's got to be like the opening ceremony of the dome," which was populist and sentimental and celebratory, and and indeed, you know. Uh, it was so good that an MP called it lefty multicultural <laughs> crap, which is, the, you know, one of the greatest endorsements <laughs> you could possibly give it from a lunatic Tory MP. Um, it, it, it was all the, it, it, it was all those things, but that bright shining moment cost. £27 million. Pounds. So when everybody talks, in a sense, nostalgically, ah, oh, that night, there's no greater argument for public funding than the arts. And if only we had 27 million quid spent every day, we might actually... <laughs> we might actually get somewhere. Um, I, I modify that slightly because I do think actually the fact that we have a mixed economy and, and that box office does play a role and those things. And I, I, I think the mixed economy um, is a defensible way because otherwise you, you end up with a sort of feather-bedded Soviet musicians or whatever mm, yeah, on yeah. the one hand. And on the other, you have a completely corporate-driven American culture. Um, but I think that, um, yes, the dome, but then the owl of Minerva flies at midnight. <laughs> um, it's traditional to finish these podcasts by asking, um, the authors if they're working on new projects or developing, uh, this current project. I guess, uh, the main thing around this book is going to be the politics of it, uh, over the next year or so. Um, and I know there's been quite a lot of, uh, media coverage and reviews so far, 
<laughs> well, not that much media coverage. Well, compared uh, to, <laughs> I, I guess, a lot of the academic books really? uh, I discuss on the podcast, there, there's been a lot more media coverage than usual for uh, for an academic text. So, well, um, yeah, well, that, yes, that's partially because, of course, the book has been written as an intervention and it is meant to be more than an academic text. I hope it stands up as a history. Yeah, and it, it's actually, it, I found it to be a wonderful synthesis of a lot of very detailed and dense research that has gone on in places like cultural policy studies and cultural sociology, but synthesized to make precisely that uh, that cultural history with a, um, an important and vital uh, political point. And a few jokes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think I said at the start, it, it, it's, it's got a wonderful dry wit in terms of how it skewers both um, uh, the more idiotic schemes of government and also some of the, uh, the less than impressive personality. Yes, yes, that was interesting, actually. This is, uh, uh, I haven't worked for Verso before, and uh, my editor there, Leo Hollis, he said, well, the thing is you don't describe people. Uh, because I'm used to the academic convention that you don't, you know, you, you you tend not to consider personalities. But actually, so I had to go, first of all, I had to cut 20,000 words from the book. <laughs> right. There's a lot more grey literature in it that has actually emerged on the page. Um, some of it I may be able to recycle elsewhere, I don't know, in academic papers, who knows. Um, but the other was actually the invitation to, to write about to, to try to characterise these people because it is true of course that I know all these people quite well and some of them are indeed I was brushing up against last night uh, as it were at the at the Barbican Christmas party um, yeah I, I mean I'm waiting to see whether anybody picks up on this I'm hoping the Labour Party will though they show very little sign of that um, there's a new book out called Why Vote Labour. It's a series. Why vote Labour? Why vote Liberal Democrat? Why vote UKIP? Even anyway, I read Why Vote Labour, and there is not a single mention of cultural policy, and it's a serious 200-page mm. book, which is a remarkable turnaround from 1997, and really the. Uh, if not cultural policy itself, but the absolute embrace of culture as a way of branding the party and also talking about its its national mission. Yes, it may be that they they realise they've done it wrong and therefore uh, they are cautious. I don't know. I think it is the truth is most politicians have absolutely no interest in in culture. Their lifestyle is, frankly, with rare exceptions, you know, totally uh, inimical to to being able to engage with the arts in in any particular way. As to what I'm uh, doing, well, I am, frankly, feeling a little fallow, and having written a series of books which began in 1939 and end in roughly 2013, you you might agree that I've run out of road, so I'm going to have to wait a bit. But um, I'm, I've become more and more interested in, in the notion of the creative industries and creativity. And so I'm, I'm thinking about that. But actually, the book on my desk as we speak is Niccolo Machiavelli, The Prince. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien, from Goldsmiths College, University of London. In this episode, I was talking to Robert Hewison about his new book, Cultural Capital, The Rise and Fall of Creative Britain.